Chapter 4 of The Story of a Modern Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shelley Stephen, Farmington Hills, Michigan. The Story of a Modern Woman by Ella Hepworth Dixon. Chapter 4 Allison. As sometimes happens with busy people in London, the Earls had hundreds of acquaintances but few intimate friends. A friendship is costly in point of time, and Mary found when one chapter of her life was done that spring morning that there were two people only that she must imperatively see, a man and a woman, Vincent Hemming and Alison Ives. How their features stood out among the crowd of vague faces which belonged to that other life. Alison Ives especially, who always looked like a Reynolds with her handsome, clever face, her superb air, and her huge hats tied under the chin. With that grave sweetness which endears us to the Siddons in the National Gallery, she yet had the look of a thinker, modernized by a slightly bored expression and a little distinguished way which at once made other women in her vicinity look dowdy or vulgar. Her clothes always seemed to suit her, as its feathers do a bird. There are women who look like an edition de luxe of a poor book. Alison Ives suggested that of a classic. It had been her habit, for a couple of years past, to sit at the feet of Professor Earle. She constantly announced, indeed, that he was the only man she wanted to marry, only that he was firm and would not permit it. Besides, it was no good trying to compete with her mother, Lady Jane, who was sixty-five and irresistible. Women of sixty-five, she said, were nowadays the only people who inspired a great passion. She supposed her turn would come, a quarter of a century hence. But all the same, the daughter was much admired in the world. But the world, as understood by her mother Lady Jane, by no means entirely satisfied this eminently modern young woman. It was whispered she had serious views, though it was certain that she was pretty enough to please a prime minister, and clever enough to entertain a guardsman if she found herself next to either at dinner. Allison did not mind which, she said. In fact, after a long day in the East End, when she was tired, she rather preferred the guardsman, who would be content to talk of polo ponies, whereas when a young woman is put next to a premier, it behooves her to look, at any rate, very brilliant indeed. Though she never smoked, was ignorant of billiard cues and guns, and hated playing the man, Allison had been heard to murmur something like an oath. It was a habit which she had picked up in Paris when she was working in a sculptor's studio, and she always declared that dame and sapristi, being in a foreign tongue, were notoriously less efficacious and by inference more pardonable than swearing in the vernacular. For the rest, with the best heart in the world, she had a somewhat caustic tongue, could interpret Chopin like an artist, and always had her hair exquisitely dressed. What attracted people at once was her womanliness, her lack of snobbishness, her real desire to be in sympathy with her own sex. Like all exceptional people, she had her moods, and sometimes for months together, she was heard of only as forming one of a party in this or that great house, while at other times she would come to town and study fitfully, or devote herself to the task of helping young girls. 
once in the middle of the season she took a lodging in a by-street in the mile end road but she only stayed seven weeks and when she appeared again the expression on her face was sadder than before of course one ought to know what it is like she said when mary asked her why she had left so soon it's an experience but a terrible one it's not only the drunkenness the down-at-heel vice the astounding absence of any thrift or forethought and the incredible repetition of one solitary adjective but it seems to me that when one or two of us go and live down there we absolutely do no permanent good at all the thing will be to bring the east end here one by one of course just as we go there allison kept her word this spring had found her ensconced in a workman's flat in the mayfair district with one small servant whom she had befriended in whitechapel but it's as much for myself as her explained allison laughing she hated to be thought philanthropic all we women are so incredibly dependent on other people it's absurd that we don't know how to do anything useful i shall keep my flat and go to it now and again when i am tired of shooting parties it will be a little home for my east end girls whom i intend to train i dare say i shall be disappointed in them but that's inevitable with all experiments anyway it will probably do me more good than it will them the only real slavery nowadays is the slavery of luxury we are all getting so pampered that we can't exist without it people do the most incredible things i have known a woman stay with a husband whom she loathed and whom it was an outrage to live with simply because she couldn't do her own hair i'm going to get our cook at ives court to teach me how to broil a mutton chop though i dare say she's too grand for that and i shall go and watch the laundry maid at her work and your hands you lunatic mary had exclaimed i think i see you with red knuckles oh said allison laughing i shall tell that little manicure just out of bond street to come twice a week there's that new stuff uh eau de orchidées it's wonderful don't imagine i'm going to give up the only old-fashioned quality we modern women have got our vanity it's the only thing that makes us still bearable this was the young woman who was shown into the study by elizabeth one morning a few days after the funeral at highgate mary was bending over a desk busy with her father's proofs when she came in the elder girl's beautiful brown eyes were suspiciously shiny it had evidently cost her an effort to come into the room which she knew so well the two girls wrung each other's hands silently but after the first kiss in which she said everything that she dared not put in words allison with her ready tact began talking business at once the younger girl announced her plans frankly there was just enough money for her to live meagerly quietly on for the next few years while she tried her luck at art mary had always meant to paint some day when her time should be at her own disposal to paint was a long-cherished ambition mused over on drowsy afternoons in the reading room of the british museum nursed through the days when she had remained bending over a desk in her father's study patiently inscribing what the professor dictated as he walked up and down the little room as for jimmy he was to remain at winchester and if he could succeed in winning a scholarship was to go to oxford as the father had wished by living carefully this could be managed no woman ever made a great artist yet said allison after a pause but if you don't mind being third-rate of course go in and try 
I suppose it'll mean South Kensington, the Royal Academy, and then portraits of babies in pastel or cottage gardens for the rest of your life. Oh, don't. Never mind, my dear girl. You must work at something. Try the British Art School. Has Vincent Hemming been? She added, rather inconsequentially. Oh, yes, he is called. Two or three times, Elizabeth says, but I haven't seen anyone, said Mary, remembering with a little shudder the inquisitive voices at the door. I don't see why, said Allison thoughtfully, you shouldn't take a flat in the same building with me. Of course, there are little drawbacks. The ladies use a limited, if somewhat virulent, vocabulary. And now and again, one has to step over an elderly gentleman who lives just below, and who comes home tired and sometimes goes to sleep on the stairs. But one gets accustomed to that. I think on the whole, said Mary, smiling, I'll take some rooms near. There are some furnished rooms in Bulstrode Street, kept by an old servant of ours. I've got to think of Jimmy and his holidays, you see. Where is the boy, by the by? Oh, poor Jimmy. I let him go. The day... the day after. He was very good. He said that nothing would induce him to leave me, and sat, poor boy, for at least an hour with his arms round my neck, crying. Then another note came from Smith Minor, the boy who keeps so many lop-eared rabbits, you remember asking him to go and spend a week with them in the country. And then, said Allison quickly, Ah, I can see Jimmy saying he shouldn't dream of going, and then wandering round the room asking if you were not perhaps going out of town yourself. And about seven o'clock an epistle was indicted to say that he would be very pleased to go, and the next morning Jimmy went off in a four-wheel cab looking quite cheerful. Mary smiled in spite of herself. Poor boy, she said softly in an extenuating voice. He can't bear anything sad. So much, said Allison after a pause, for brothers. We've got, answered the other, fortunately or unfortunately, to depend upon ourselves in all the crises of life. I've got lots to do, lawyers to see, these proofs to correct, and to make arrangements for my own future. Only that? She refuses herself nothing, said Allison. I am modestly contented with arranging for Evelina's future. Evelina is my last girl. As for my own, I leave it to Providence. You can afford to, replied Mary, but we have it on the authority of a proverb that heaven is not above taking assistance from mortals in this respect. My dear, you should never say cynical things. You'll find you will so often be obliged to do them. But I want to tell you about Evelina, she went on nervously, afraid every minute that one or the other of them might break down. Evelina is my new girl, she continued, settling down on the fender stool. Her name is actually Evelina, isn't it preposterous? I should like to call her Polly, only I don't believe in changing poor people's names to suit your own fancy as if they were cats or canaries. Well, Evelina's baby. Oh, there's a baby? Why, of course, a poor waxen little thing that screams all day long. I've put it out to nurse in a creche that a friend of mine has started in Kentish Town. And now I'm trying to cultivate a sense of humor in Evelina. It will be difficult, won't it? said Mary, trying hard to take an interest. Never mind. It's what women ought to cultivate above all other things, especially the poorer classes. With a keen sense of the ridiculous, they would never fall in love at all, and as to improvident marriages, they simply wouldn't exist. If you could see the baby's father, a pudding-faced boy who helps in a tiny cheesemonger's shop down there. She walked out with him for two years. He is now nearly nineteen. It is all very well to smile, but it is terrible, 
for the woman. In the evening, when she has done her work, she lights the lamp in my little sitting room. Everything is quite simple, you know. I've got a few books and the tiny carat from my den at Ives Court and the Rossetti drawings. And then I read aloud while she knits. I read comic things, Dickens, Mark Twain, and so on. And when the poor girl laughs, I feel that I have scored. She isn't much more than a child, you know, and she has such a good heart. I think she likes to talk to me. She tells me her little story. A story, repeated Mary. She has a story then? Oh, a common one enough down there, answered Allison. She drifted into the East End from Essex about three years ago and became a drudge of all work in a family of ten in the Mile End Road. Her master was pleased to make love to her when his wife and eight children had gone for the day to South End. Evelina ran out of the house, leaving her box behind, and never dared to go back. Mary, these London idols are not pretty. She is, however, beginning to show a faint sense of the ridiculous. I believe I shall make a sensible person of Evelina. Mary raised her head, for she had been listening mechanically, with her eyes fixed on the ink spots on her father's desk, the desk on which his hand had so often rested. But it was impossible not to feel cheered by Allison's whimsical yet energetic personality. She looked so bright, so alert, so capable as she stood there in her pretty black gown and her rakish hat, a little askew from the wind. By the by, did I tell you the adventure I had on my way to the Blaythwaites? My dear, it was only by the intervention of Providence that I didn't have to dine the first night in my tailor gown. Of course, I went down third class. That's because you're saving for Evelina's baby, I suppose, interrupted Mary. And so, went on Allison, taking no notice of the interruption, the footman never thought of looking for me there. They all drove off without me, and my basket trunk with my favorite white gown in it got taken off with some other people to another place about five miles off. However, it was got back in time, and when I told my little story at dinner to Sir Horace, he was immensely amused, though I'm sure Lady Blaythwaite thought I was graduating for a lunatic asylum. People who don't know me well always do. Did you tell Sir Horace Blaythwaite about the workman's flat and Evelina? said Mary, laughing. Allison was already at the door tying on her hat firmly. You know I never talk about that, she said, flushing up. Why, it would look like a pose, as if I thought myself better than other people. And I couldn't bear anyone to say that I had taken up slumming. You know how I detest the whole attitude of the upper and middle classes towards the poor. Lifting the lids of people's saucepans and routing under their beds for fluff is simply impertinence. Why, district visiting is nothing less than a gross breach of manners, a little worse than electioneering, if that's possible. I'm just going up, she said, giving a rakish twist to her velvet hat strings, to the Cretian Kentish town to see Evelina's baby. I'm going on the top of one of those charming trams. I told Worth when I was in Paris that I always went on the tops of omnibuses and he designed me this little frock on purpose. It's pretty, isn't it? But a bit too ingenue for me. It smacks of the Comédie Française. I think I see Reichenberg in it, said Allison doubtfully, smoothing down the folds of her loose bodice. Now you've got to promise to come and dine with me and Mother in Portman Square. We'll have the house to ourselves. Goodbye, eight o'clock. Nonsense. It's very sweet of you, but I can't possibly go, cried Mary down the passage. In another instant she was gone, and the house seemed blank and empty again. But trying not to think of her sorrow, Mary went steadily on with the proofs. End of chapter 4 Recording by Shelley Stephen, Farmington Hills, Michigan